Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome, everyone. This is episode 12 of Profiles and Strategy. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman of the Strategy and Policy Department, U.S. Naval War College. Joining me today for our uh, our 12th episode are uh, Dr. Tim Hoyt, Dr. Dave Stone, and Dr. Jim Holmes. Gentlemen, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Always a pleasure. All right. I thought we'd start out the discussion today with talking about this concept that was um, made a few CNOs ago of China is our pacing threat. And that's what we're, that's what we're going after. That's what we're modeling. That's what we're, we're matching. And, and they're the strategic adversary, the strategic challenge. Uh, so Jim, let's start the conversation with you. What do you think of that, that assumption? Well, I mean, as we were talking about before you uh, before you hit record, I mean, it's, it's it, to me a pay, this idea of a pacing threat is kind of it's kind of become a buzz phrase. I think it's I mean, I think it it goes back to the old question of whether you need an enemy to have strategy or at least a potential enemy to have a strategy. In 1919, uh, when the Navy was floundering after World War One, Captain Captain Harry Yarnell on the CNO's staff, he basically said, "A strategy without an opponent is like is like." Creating a creating a, a machine tool that's going to produce either either hat pins or locomotives, and you don't know which. And that's a, so so, you, so the idea is that you that you have to designate a potential opponent to 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 plan against to to shape your own capabilities against and so forth, rather than do what we did after the Cold War when it looked like there was no was no adversary, and we went over to more ethereal concepts like capabilities based planning. Whereby we we assumed what capabilities we needed to do we needed in order to do the things that we wanted to do and, and so on and so forth so which I which I think deta- which I think has a tendency to detach force planning and, and and building from actual conditions out there that we will face if we get into a competition with a, with, with a great power rival which we which we think we are in now so so it's it's not a, it's it's not a new it's not a new question it's a recurring question and something that we should all think about as far as as far as but but as far as the idea of a pacing threat I mean we know that we know that an adversary's strength is made up of capabilities and intentions it's a compound of the, a compound of both so assessing a, 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 a adversary a leading adversary's capabilities it means sizing up doing that assessment all that kind of stuff and also thinking about competence is your adversary no matter how well that adversary is equipped is he competent competent to use the instruments of war at his disposal and i would just point you to, to the ukraine war when it looks like you have a pretty well well equipped military that is uh that is that is mishandling all the implements uh, at its disposal and then of course uh, engaging intentions is obviously key as well what is what does the adversary's leadership say? How serious is the adversary? How seriously do you, do you take his threats and on and on? So I think I think all that uh, the, all that stuff feeds into the idea of the pacing at pacing threat, i.e., your leading adversary that that you need to benchmark yourself against. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some some great threads in there to to pull on. But I'll first, move to, move the question around here, uh, uh, Tim. Why don't we go to you next? Um. Yeah, I think there are probably two reasons to think about China as some as a, the state that we need to look at as a, as a pacing competitor. The first would be military, um, because we both share a significant economic and political interest in the Pacific Rim. Uh, and China has built up formidable military capabilities in the last 20 years, um, much more so than when we were looking at them in the 90s. But the other issue, I think, and and this is me being a bit of a political scientist. When we talk about great power competition, we're not necessarily talking about kinetic conflict. We're talking about great powers interacting for influence in an international system. And there's absolutely no doubt that we have to treat China as a peer competitor in the international system economically, because its share, if you use purchasing power parity, its share of global gross domestic product is roughly the same as ours. We can quibble about the figures. It's within a percentage point or two. There are some who are claiming that they will surpass us soon or by 2030. Um, 
But China is an economic reality. And it's an economic reality that's not going to go away. And it is an important part of the global economy. And as long as a globalized economy is important to us, figuring out how to deal with China is critical because otherwise we're detaching 15 to 20 percent of the global economy and everybody's poorer. So I think it makes sense to look at China. You know, the, the term that was used in the 90s may be a better one, which is pure competitor. Uh, and if we look at them in terms of different elements of national power, we're concerned about the military. Uh, on the economic, they have considerable power and influence, especially in the Pacific Rim, because their proximity to other major Asian economies is actually a significant advantage over our distance. Uh, there are good reasons that there's lots of investment in trade between China and its neighbors. Um, on the diplomatic, I think that's a place where it's not as clear that they're a pacing threat. Um, and in fact, I would argue China has been doing, taking actions that are relatively self-defeating. Um, and similarly in information, I think there, those elements that we used to call soft power are places where I think we don't see China um, competing as effectively. And that's a good thing. Right, uh, having an advantage in a great power competition is very useful to have, and it's something that we should maximize. Part of our problem is that we've chronically underfunded the State Department for forty years, and diplomacy, although we use it a lot, it could be much more of a strength for us than it currently is because of lack of funding and personnel. Yeah, how many battalions does the Department of State have? Huh? To, uh, <laughs> well, so let me let me ask a quick follow up on that one, Tim, because it, it what the question that jumps to mind for me is when you say that. So we're, we're talking about a pure competitor, we're talking about engaging them on the other elements of, of national power. And, and you mentioned the economic sphere, which is which is certainly the, the thing. But it would seem to me and I, and I guess this is somewhat more of a grand strategic discussion, more of a senior level course discussion, but that's probably good, is uh, you can engage one economically and, and write policies and do all this other thing. But when we talk about then programming a military strategy and buying ships and bombers and, and you know, tanks to because they're the guys we think we're going to go fight. Is that two different things or is, is that are those those necessarily mutually exclusive? What do you what do you think about that? I don't think they're necessarily exclusive, but the, the thing that makes it complicated is that they affect one another. Right. If you're trying to have a more positive relationship with China, but China believes that they're um, caught in a in <clears throat> on the wrong end of a security dilemma with you because you have suddenly um, increased shipbuilding and demonstrated new military capabilities, it makes the diplomatic side more complicated. I do think though, it's worth remembering, China benefits enormously from the global economic system. Now it wants to do better. It wants to gain more advantage in the global economic system as do we all. Uh, so we will bump heads on economics, but they may not necessarily, and I know I'm sounding like Norman Angel in the early 20th century here, it may not necessarily lead to conflict because both of us have a stake in the existing system. And the argument is perhaps more on the margins there of relative advantage. Where the rubber hits the road is issues of territory. And China has contested borders with a lot of its neighbors. And as we know, they have claims to Taiwan and to other islands in South China Sea and other places. That's a that's a different matter, and it's one where our diplomacy so far um, hasn't been able to ameliorate that tension. And you know, I put it that way. I think. Okay, um, Dave, you're our, you're a Russia guy, so feel free to adapt this question as to whether or not Russia should be our pacing threat instead of China. But uh, <laughs> any thoughts on I'm, this? One? I am way ahead of you on that one. I was already, I was thinking about that as my colleague. <laughs> Um, I mean, one of the things that in terms of pacing threat, if pacing threat means means anything, it seems to be um, like, what is the pace we must maintain or what is the pace we must achieve? And I, I think both Jim and Tim are getting at the fact that, that China has enormous capabilities, both economically and militarily. Um, and so there's a sense in which uh, great power competition involves both spheres. Uh, and Russia is an illustrative contrast because um, while both Russia and China have serious uh, weaknesses on the kind of the diplomatic and informational fronts, 
Um, China is much more of an economic powerhouse than Russia is. Um, Russia, by virtue of a whole series of factors, historical and, and natural, um, is essentially a, a supplier of raw materials to the world. Uh, and China is, is much more than that. Um, that said, the fact that Russia is relatively economically weak compared to other great powers, as we've seen in Ukraine, doesn't mean that Russia can't cause lots of problems. The military power has a way of trumping other things. Um, uh, like Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until they're punched in the face. And, and the ability militarily to punch someone in the face can trump a lot of other things. Um, now, I would never say that um, Russia is the potential uh, rival that, that China is, given that economic basis. But I do think there's an, an interesting contrast, and it can show the way in which military power may not necessarily always... Um, the economic power matters in the long run, but in the short run, um, short run is when things happen. The other thing I would note, and again, I'm not a China expert, but I, I, I read things. Um, and one of the things that we're going to have to see going forward is whether... Um, the Chinese economy now is in the middle of a blip or a long-term change in its trajectory? Couple things. I mean, one, COVID in the short run and China's strategy for dealing with COVID has done a lot of short-term damage to the Chinese economy. But I think there were signs prior to that that Chinese growth was definitely slowing down as the advantages of cheap labor and a big population are, are being exhausted. And so one of the, the long-term questions, uh, kind of an SLC theme to think about is, where is China headed? Um, is China's growth settling down to a more normal rate of economic growth, or is China going to be able to maintain growth well above the world average for some foreseeable time to come? And yeah, that's for China experts to answer, but I think it's a really important question. Mm. Jim, we'll go to you for a response. Yeah, I guess uh, sort of two points. Uh, first of all, and uh, both responding to things that uh, Dave hinted at, I mean, years and years ago, uh, Tom Christensen down at Princeton posed a or he wrote a, he published a famous article called "Posing Problems Without Catching Up," and he was he was trying to project the future of China as a competitor. And he and he he forecast, and you hear a fair amount of this. He forecast that China would not actually not actually catch up for a lot of the reasons that we've heard already here this morning: demographics, economics, the environment, which has been a disaster since the days of Mao, if not, if not before. I mean, there's a lot there's a lot of things that are going to weigh on China's uh, military. Uh, ambition just because it's going to have a lot of stuff to do at home. Keep in mind that the People's Armed Police in China, that, that actually that's actually a larger share of the Chinese national budget than the PLA, the, the People's Liberation Army. And that is not the behavior of a, of a regime that's confident in, in, in the sustainability of its rule into the future, because that's, I mean, that's just a season thing, and his lieutenants are very much uh, worried. Secondly, in the, in, in a relatedly, this uh, this is a question that uh, when I started doing China work almost 20 years ago, we used to get they used to get into into a fight about whether China could actually build a navy, and this is something that Dave also alluded alluded to as well. And it seemed kind of I was a latecomer to China studies, so, so it seemed kind of obvious to me that China would be a serious maritime competitor. But even if it's not, I mean, think about think about uh, past maritime competitors, whether it's the Soviet Union, whether it's Imperial Germany, or whoever the K or, or Imperial Japan. These were powers that did not match the dominant ocean-going power of the day, but made enormous enormous trouble for that uh, for that for that power. So yeah, so even if we don't think China is going to catch up, it, it can still it can still cause an, an enormous amount of havoc, especially in its backyard, which by definition is is what it cares most about. So it's a so I actually I actually think that China is an exceptionally dangerous power right now. Uh, so, I mean, think about what Clausewitz says. Think back to week one of the course. Clausewitz says that the trend lines are turning against you. If you think domestic trends and international trends are turning against your fortunes, it may make a sense. For, it may make sense for you to pick a fight this year rather than wait till next year when things might be even worse and you have less chance of getting a getting a uh, uh, getting what you want. This is what uh, that, well, this is what uh, Hal Brands and Michael Beckley uh, down at Sice, uh, Johns Hopkins, and, T and Tufts University, uh, respectively, they refer to this to, a, to they refer to this as a danger zone, a time when they, when she is tempted to act. He's probably he may be at the zenith of his uh, ability to do so, and therefore, if he thinks they, if he thinks good, things are going to be worse next year. And that this feeds into the idea of a Davidson window over the next five years, if not less. And by, by the way, see, you know, Gil Day has taken this idea of the David, Davidson window, and he says, you know, that's a, that's the far extreme of, of this window of opportunity. Could happen, it could happen today, could happen next year. So you actually hear the Navy leadership taking a pretty ominous uh, view of uh, view of the situation in the Western Pacific. And I think it all goes back to to these forecasting of trends and when's the right time to do stuff. 
Xi has he's repeatedly promised to regain Taiwan, and he has staked his president his personal credibility on it. And that adds up to a lot of pressure for him to act, because if he doesn't do that, he looks weak and feckless, which is a very dangerous thing for an authoritarian leader in the face of a, a people that uh, that seems restive. Mm. Uh, okay, I, I definitely want to ask a follow-up on that one, Jim, but Tim, we'll go to you first for a response. Uh, yeah, just uh, to, to point out or to emphasize what, what Jim just said, apparently, now I do not speak Chinese, but apparently Xi's uh, comments at the 20th Party Congress sounded to some analysts as though they were again putting an accelerant on the Taiwan issue. Um, that's worth noting because this is a huge uh, public event and an incredibly important one for in terms of Chinese domestic politics. I also wanted to emphasize something that Dave said. We think about Russia and at least if, if you're old like me, you tend to think about Russia and you tend to think about the Cold War and you tend to think about the Soviet Union. Um, the Russia of today even before Ukraine, uh, was nowhere near the power of the Soviet Union. Um, it had, at, at the height of Soviet power in the late 1960s, it had about half of the GDP of the United States. Uh, now that figure is less than 10%. So the economic weight that uh, Russia can throw around, it is not trivial because it's an important energy producer and it's an important food producer and it's an important weapons producer. And those are things that people want, that, that states want in the international system. At the same time, their overall economy is about the size of Italy's, which is not to say that it's trivial. Um, it's a major European economy, but it's not Germany or Japan, much less India or China or the United States. Um, I, think that's worth, I think that's worth sort of pointing out. Yeah, what would all these uh, insurgent movements around the world do without uh, Kalazinov's like, right? That's like the that's like the symbol of uh, you know <laughs> the, the insurgency. Um, so there's some good threads to pull there too. But I want to go back to this concept, Jim. What you mentioned there. So um, you also mentioned Clausewitz. So let's bring in a Clausewitzian concept. There have been, I think, there was a what was it an article written uh, by you know Chinese officers a couple of years back talking about uh, Americans don't have the the high value of the object to fight for Taiwan, right? So it's a we talk about the concept of um, you know you getting the support of uh, of the people means having a value of the object that is that is high and, and people that are willing to fight for something. Um, if that's true, let's assume that it is true that we don't have a high value of the object to to get in a major theater war for Taiwan. Does it make sense to draw a red line around Taiwan like uh, like the administration has? Well, I mean, I mean, China is making a point that we've seen repeatedly in the course. I, and by the way, if you ever want to see something that's kind of moving on on the on this front in the Vietnam context, uh, get out there on your Google or your favorite browser and 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 Google. Uh, deleted scene. We were soldiers. There's a wonderful. There's a wonderful scene that was deleted from the film, and in, in which uh, Colonel Moore actually goes back to Washington and debriefs West Warnell and the Westmoreland and uh, and Secretary McNamara, and they and they, they congratulate him on his great victory in the Iadrang Valley and so forth, and uh, and say we're going to chase those little so and so's back home, and Moore looks at him and he says those guys are home. They attach an enormous, uh, enormous amount of, of uh, value to national reunification as they see it. They're on their home ground and on and on and on. So that, I mean, and, and so our Chinese friends are not wrong when they say that. The, 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 I, think, I think it's a leadership question on our side of the Pacific. We need to figure out how, how much all in we are on, on the cause of Taiwan. Why is that? You hear a lot about uh, semiconductors and whatnot. But I mean, it's a more basic questions about uh, whether the, the freedom of 24 million people is worth engaging a nuclear armed superpower in that superpower's own, own backyard. If, if the answer is no, if the, if the answer is no, that suggests that the magnitude of the effort on the part of the United States and its allies and, the, and, and also the duration, how long it lasts, is going to is it's going to is going to be much more uh, peripheral. You know, by the way, I would I, I wouldn't think in terms of just one conflict. I mean, suppose we get into a scrap in the Taiwan Strait uh, today and win, as I as I hope we would. But that I mean, China's not going anywhere. As as we've said, uh, Xi Jinping, he's all in. I mean, he has he has to try to deliver. And I can't see any Chinese Communist Party leader in the future of uh, backtracking on that. What what comes after the, what comes after a victory? Are we able to enforce the peace, or are we setting ourselves up for a recurring set, set of uh, a small scale clashes in which our value of the object is less than that of China? 
and on and on. So, so I think that's, I think you're right to bring uh, Clausewitz in. And, I, and we have to think about, I mean, you get the point, you get the piece that you enforce. Can we enforce the peace? Does the value of the object for the United States and its allies carry into the post-war era if we win? And if not, are we setting ourselves up for a Treaty of Versailles type situation in the future? Mm. Yeah. Tim, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, uh, I think regarding Taiwan, um, in the last few months, there should be on the Chinese side sort of two key um, uncertainties. And the first is, again, as, as you both noted, President Biden has come out and said things out loud that are often the things that we don't say out loud, um, you know, that the United States will defend Taiwan. Uh, the second thing, though, is the military outcomes in Ukraine, uh, if China is able to make sort of objective assessments of their own military capability, What's going on in Ukraine should make them question some of that capability. They have exercised a lot with the Russians. And I would assume having exercised with the Russians, they would have made assessments about their strengths and weaknesses, re the Russians with an assumption that the Russians are pretty effective. And therefore they would have some assessment of their relative effectiveness vis-a-vis -vis the United States. Russia has turned out not to be effective. And for a number of reasons, right? Uh, one of the things that we found is that um, despite several decades of talking about revolutions in military affairs, you can be technologically determinist and that things like doctrine and training and logistics matter an enormous amount, amount in warfare. I would think that what has happened to Russia, especially in the air domain, would make China think twice about whether now is the right time to go or at least it would, it would inject a moment of pause because I think all of their plans for Taiwan assume that they are gonna have air superiority if not air dominance, right? That's an important thing for them to get in order to then do what they need to do to invade Taiwan if, if that's the plan. Um, we've seen layered air defenses in Ukraine and not super sophisticated ones are quite capable of preventing air superiority over fairly significant battlefields. And we've also seen, and this is something that again, I would hope our China scholars are looking at, Russian doctrine constrains their air power capability in ways that alarmed the United States. I mean, we really thought that, you know, by day two or three, the Russians would control the air and all of a sudden they didn't. And it's not a function of technology, it's a function of doctrine. They, they just don't have the doctrine that looks for air dominance in the same way that the US and many Western countries do. Um, I don't know what Chinese doctrine is like, but it may be much more constraining. And if again, they're capable of sort of objective self-assessment, that might be something they should be looking at. Um, similarly with pilot quality, right? There's a lot of different things that are going on in the air domain over Ukraine that are interesting. And if I were Chinese, I'd be looking and saying, well, maybe I can't do all the things I want to do as early as I thought I could do them because it's the military, the character of the war may be different. Um, the big missing variable in all of this, though, I think, is Taiwanese will. Um, you know, Jim mentioned capabilities and intentions earlier. Clausewitz looks at uh, strength in terms of the means that you can bring to the fight and then the will that you have to utilize them. If China, if Taiwan wants to defend itself, that's one thing. If Taiwan does not want to defend itself or is divided about whether it should defend itself, that is something else. And I don't know what China's intelligence assessments of that are. Um, I'm not even sure what our intelligence assessments of that are, but uh, that would be a critical variable, I think. Yeah, we can't want it more than the Taiwanese do. They have to want it, and we get we have to be in the the, the supporting arm and not the supported arm in, the, in, in any of those things. I, I suppose though, it's a it's an excellent point to say that you know as much as we kind of like to say, oh, doctrine, whatever. The last time the Chinese fought was what sixty nine against the Soviets, and they certainly didn't fight joint, right? So this would be a completely different uh, different you know situation. But Dave, I want to throw it over to you and, and, and spin it for, for Ukraine here. Um, same issues kind of apply where, you know, we haven't drawn a red line with Ukraine, but we are sending them billions of dollars worth in aid. But same thing, is the value of the objects really that high about Ukraine? And then does it make sense to also start 
making a nuclear armed power really, really angry like this. So uh, one quick point, I mean, the, so the Chinese did fight Vietnam at the end of the 1970s and, and that didn't go well. Um, and, and, you know, China versus the Soviet Union in the late 60s was peer on peer. Um, China versus Vietnam was not peer on peer, but the Vietnamese clearly wanted it more. Um, China wanted to dis discipline Vietnam. The Vietnamese thought they were fighting for their country and they were, um, nice. and it made a huge difference. Um, on this question, I mean, the, the Taiwan-Ukraine comparison is really interesting on a number of different levels. Um, one is you frame the question, John, at the beginning, like would the U.S. go to bat for support um, a small country against a nuclear armed rival? I was like, well, that ship has sailed. We've done that. Um, now, it's not American boots on the ground in Ukraine, but the United States and its allies are putting an enormous amount of material and information at the disposal of the Ukrainians um, with great uh, and I think surprising unanimity on the part of Western publics on this, that this is a good thing and worth doing. Um, and I don't know that anybody, I certainly didn't expect that. I didn't expect a degree of Western consensus on this. Um, and I'll note that the US had, in terms of an ongoing defense relationship, US has had a much, much longer connection and defense relationship with Taiwan than we ever did with Ukraine. Um, and so those connections are deeper. Now, the situation is, is perhaps um, at least looks a little more one-sided with regard to China versus Taiwan, but, but um, Ukraine is instructed. The U.S. and the West was willing to go to bat for a democracy that was being picked on. Um, and that democracy turned out to fight in Ukraine a lot better than anybody expected. Um, and I'll note, so going into February of 2022, Ukrainian society, everyone talked about deeply divided. Um, you've got this linguistic split from East to West. The political class, including Zelensky, was not popular. And yet, attack from outside has this remarkable effect of galvanizing popular will. So again, if the Chinese are looking carefully at Ukraine, I think they would see a number of things that would make them think twice. And it's a big if. If they are looking carefully and objectively at what's going on in Ukraine, that should give them pause. Whether that's happening, that's an entirely different question. I'd like to see what's going on in the Chinese military journals. Like what lessons, if any, are they drawing from Ukraine? Um, one bigger thing, and I'll sort of step back and do the kind of the military historian um, for a bit. One of the things that, that often happens is that there's this kind of arms race between platforms and anti-platform systems. Um, and tanks are on the battlefield, but then systems come that can fight tanks. Um, and in that constant race between uh, a platform and the things that can counter that platform, I think we may be at a moment when the, the pendulum is swinging more towards anti-platform systems. Um, now, that's a big generalization. Maybe it's not true, but the, what we're seeing in Ukraine makes it look like anti-tank missiles and anti-aircraft systems and anti-ship missiles may be in a moment where they're having an upper hand. Uh, and that's an advantage to the defender. If that generalization is true, that's an advantage to the defender. Now, it's a hard question to answer. And one of the things that I often talk about when talking about the Russian military is you always have to be careful. Um, are you looking at something objective in the technology? Are you looking at a question of training? Are you looking at a question of doctrine? Um, when the Moskva was sunk um, by anti-ship missiles, was it because it was an old platform, which it was? Was it because the Russians don't pay as much attention to damage control as part of their sort of doctrine and approach? possibly, or were they just bad at running their anti-missile systems? Also quite possible. Um, so you have to think very carefully and, and, and think hard about what's actually going on here to draw the right conclusions. But again, I think there's at least a suggestion that we may be in a moment where defensive systems have something of an advantage. It doesn't trump everything else, but it might be something that would sort of change calculations about a Taiwan contingency. And I'm, I've ranted enough, so I'll stop there. <laughs> Good deal. So let's um actually let's go to tim for a response on that yeah, just to 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 sort of capitalize on what dave just said i mean i think another thing that we're seeing here is that the us and the west have gotten used to working in very permissive military environments um that's not to say that counterinsurgency and counterterrorism operations aren't very difficult very lethal very you know very dangerous but um I'm not sure that the Taliban ever fired a surface-to-air missile. Um, they hadn't through about 2015. Uh, so that's a very permissive air environment. Mm. Um, suddenly you're in an air environment 
this should be challenging us as well to look at our own doctrine and think about, well, wait a minute, how are we going to work in a much more contested environment? We haven't really seen what the Russians can do because the Ukrainians haven't been flying much. Um, what can the Chinese do? You know, there are some other elements of this, I think, that also are worth looking at. Um, electronic warfare. Uh, we thought the Russians had enormous advantages in that. Um, and it appears that they are adapting effectively, but I'm not sure why that why that wasn't an, in an initial enormous advantage or not. That's something that probably bears studying because electronic warfare is also of concern to us in Indo-PACOM. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a that's a great point, Tim. Uh, uh, the Taliban they did shoot down that helicopter of seals in I think it was 2002, but. I can't remember another time when they, they actively fired at, I mean, they fired small arms at a lot of our helicopters, especially when I was there, but I don't think, no, they didn't have the, like the real systems, right? It was maybe a random RPG that our countermeasures could easily defeat, but yeah, uh, yeah it would, would have been a different game if, uh, if we had, if we had fought some, you know, an integrated air defense is, uh, something we've kind of maybe forgotten how to fight and definitely gives, uh, I know it gives the air force pause, uh, <laughs> seen that in theater, uh, be careful what I say, but, but yeah, uh, <laughs> let's, um, let's move the conversation. We started to kind of talk about theorists and theory. And since I brought big brother, Alfred there Mahan with me today here for the, uh, as my background, um, we have, we have a number of theorists in the course, our two famous naval theorists, Mahan and Sir Julian Corbett, what what do you think they'd say, or maybe ask it this way, what do you think we can learn from them in terms of this strategic question about uh, whether it's uh, China or Russia as our, as our pacing threats or peer competitors or whatever we choose to call them? Jim, why don't we open it up with you? Well, I mean, I mean, it's a huge question. In fact, that's a gargantuan question. But I mean, I, I guess if we if we wanted to take a pointer from from each each one of the theorists that you mentioned, I guess my hand would he would tell us that there's a, the logic of sea power remains compelling for the for the United States and for its allies as well. I mean, it's a, it's a logic built on commerce bases and ships, and in particularly maritime strategy is it hinges on access access to places where we, where we would like to trade. So that's a, so that's a, so maintaining access to the Western Pacific and the Eastern Mediterranean. Mediterranean and other places the United States would like to would like to trade is important to the United States. It's also important to China, and I think that's an, I think that's a that's a point of particular strategic leverage for the United States as it considers how to deter China. If you if you if you can constrain China's access to to the to the maritime commons and its access to places that it wants to trade, which is a whole lot of places around the world, at that point that uh, that tra translates potentially into into leverage. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, and I think and that's uh, that, that's one reason you hear the Marine Corps talking about ex expeditionary advanced base operations. Uh, just this week, you heard uh, uh, Representative Gallagher out of out of uh, out of Wisconsin, a former Marine, talking about uh, an anti-Navy based on islands around the Pacific and designed to target the PLA Navy and potentially the the, the Chinese merchant fleet uh, as a point of leverage there. So I guess that that would be the big Mahanian point I would make. The Corbettian point, I think, is uh, that as you all know, or as the students know, we all talked about uh, Mahan and Corbett throughout the throughout the course. There was a real there was a real point of contention on the operational and the tactical levels between Mahan and Corbett. Mahan is all offense all, all the time until you gain absolute control of the sea, drive off the enemy's flag, and all that other flowery stuff that he talks about. And Corbett says, "Well, usually yes, but not always." And he spends a whole lot of time talking about the not always uh, scenarios. In which, uh, in which either I'm not, I'm not the Royal Navy is not strong enough to take the offensive at a given time and place, putting strategic com or so superior combat power at the time and place of action, or in the flip side of that is what if my adversary is not strong enough to, to come out and have a fight for command of the sea? How do I get the adversary to come out to come out and, and fight? Well, I attack something he has to defend, even if he doesn't want to. So this all goes into the idea that he, that, that uh, Corbett puts forth called active defense, much like the Maoist concept. In fact, it's almost exactly the same concept, except Mao was talking about land and Corbett was talking about sea. If you're not strong enough to fight for command on day one, well, do things to build up your own strength. Gather, build new shipping, gather, gather your fleets, mass them at the place and time of combat, weaken your adversary, break his alliances, do things to, to get him to overextend and fragment his forces. So I think to me, that's a much more that's a much more realistic uh, 
concept for thinking about how the United States and its allies ought to do things in China's backyard in the opening stages of conflict. Just say no to a short war, which is what China wants. If you can do things to if you can do things to to protract the conflict, weaken China, make the United States and its allies and its and its friends stronger in the region. At that point, at that point, ultimately, if you do that successfully, you can do the Mahanian thing, which is what Corbett wants to do. He does want to win. He just says you might not be able to do it on day one. And then he's much more realistic about how, how you do things if you're not this strongest power at all places and all times. So uh, so a, a big theoretical and logical point uh, from Mahan and a grammatical point from uh, from Corbett. Mm -hmm. Okay. Dave, any any thoughts on this one? I would not add a lot. I mean, obviously, you said um, Jim is the, the one who coins the money when it comes to naval theory. Um, one of the things that's been quite striking to me as, as a newcomer to naval theory when I got to the Naval War College was just how much more resonance the idea of a fortress fleet has for me when I think about kind of technological change. Um, apparently, um, Admiral Nelson never said a ship's a fool to fight a fort, but he should have because it's a really good point. Um, and that that meant one thing when you know, a, you know a, an artillery piece in Nelson's day could shoot at best a few hundred yards, um, and now when uh, land-based systems can go hundreds of kilometers, thousands of kilometers, um, fortress fleets look a lot more viable. A fortress fleet can do a lot more, and I think thinking about the implications of that is going to be really interesting and important. And, and clearly, the, the commandant of the Marine Corps, who's going to be visiting here at the Naval War College very soon, has been thinking a lot about that as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so the, I, I would. I'll leave it at that. I mean, I think there's uh, quite a bit to that in terms of the way the Russians think about using their Navy. It's not quite drawing um, A2 AD circles around um, Russian territory, but there are ways in which the Russians think about naval power as closely aligned to land power and not as an independent arm that I think um, uh, has some resonance here. I'll okay, Jim, we'll go to you for a response to that one. Uh, I was just going to. I was just going to be pedantic on the on the on the Nelson on the Nelson point. Uh, it's it's actually unclear whether he did say that. However, even if Nelson didn't say that, and of course he knew a lot about fighting against forts during the Napoleonic Wars, somebody somebody I would say is equally distinguished. Definitely, definitely did say it, and that's uh, Captain Wayne Hughes, the author of Fleet Tactics, all the in three editions, all the way from the 1980s up until, until his death in 2019. He thought he thought Nelson did say it, but but it doesn't really matter because uh, because Hughes is the authority on fleet tactics, the operational level of war. And it, in fact, it, not only does he say that, it's just not just a one-liner for for him. He actually, he actually has seven cornerstones of naval operations that are very much uh, worth their students' notice. And you will encounter him also over in JMO. But that's one of them. A ship's a fool to fight a fort. You have to define the fort much differently these days. Uh, Mahan, as we saw back during the Russo-Japanese War case study, thought a fortress fleet, that was a disastrous way to do things. But assume the guns of Port Arthur now have ranges and precision reaching out scores, if not hundreds or, or thousands of miles out to sea. At that point, a fortress fleet looks like a pretty darn good idea because you've cleared a lot of a lot of sea space for your fleet to roam, even if it's weaker than the adversary. If you can, that's your big difference maker is shore-based fire support. So Okay, it, it brings up a, it, it was a historian and pedantic like you guys are. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I I definitely want to give Tim a shot at at, uh, at answering this, but I I have a follow up question. Tim, let's go to you first. Okay, a, a couple of other stray rounds. Um, the first, uh, both Mahan and Corbett talk about sea lines of communications and about choke points mm -hmm. and things like that. These are important in both cases. Both Russia and China uh, face significant geographic and geopolitical barriers. Um, I think if we look at the Ukraine war, again, it's, it's, our, it's our, our lab right now, there's a couple of interesting phenomena that, that emphasize the importance of sea power. Um, the first is Russia, again, its economy um, is heavily dependent on moving energy resources. Uh, those energy resources can be moved by pipeline, but now the pipelines are vulnerable uh, and the Europeans don't want the stuff anymore. They're trying to distance themselves from Russian energy supplies, which means if Russia is going to sell energy, um, the surplus that it has, because there's only so much pipeline capacity to Central Asia and to China and to Japan, is going to have to be moved by sea. And that may be difficult if the war continues, um, right? There, if the war escalates in some way, you could see that it would be very difficult for Russia to use commercial shipping. Um, either because of sanctions or because literally blockade. I think also there's been this really interesting negotiation in the Black Sea 
which is the kind of thing that you don't often see in war, where now both Russia and Ukraine can <clears throat> ship food by sea in from a war zone to the rest of the world. And that's an interesting diplomatic magic. <clears throat> I don't know if China would be able to pull that off if there were a war in the Pacific Rim, uh, that China would somehow be able to exclude some portion of its commercial activity. I, I just don't see that happening. But again, we have this really interesting case in the Black Sea, and that's probably worth studying in terms of both international law and in terms of international markets. The third thing, which is a combination of, again, both this commercial shipping issue and of the geography issue, um, in the event of a war between the United States and China, um, insurance rates are going to skyrocket. And commercial shipping will not move into the South China Sea because it's a war zone. And the South China Sea is the most heavily trafficked body of water in the world. Uh, and it is crucial for China's economy. Um, I have my own sort of hackneyed theory about this. We spend a lot of time talking about how many ships it will take us to blockade. I'm not actually sure that that's going to be necessary, especially if the war protracts, because I think insurance rates will go up so high that people won't be able to do maritime trade with China. And so there will be a de facto blockade, whether we have ships on station or not, because for commercial reasons, people will find ways to stay out of the war zone. And that is probably something China should be thinking about. How long before a lack of either of both imports and exports, um, how long a war can they fight before they begin to suffer significant economic consequences? And based on what we've seen with COVID, um, there are there can be significant shocks in the Chinese economic system fairly quickly. So I think that's another thing to look at. Um, I haven't studied it deeply. So as I said, it's sort of a, a hackneyed idea, but it might be worth looking at because if I'm right, um, that's again, the kind of thing that we should probably find ways to publicize to China to add yet another moment of uncertainty for them if they are actually thinking about reducing the timeline for a Taiwan strike. Hmm. Jim, we'll go to you for a response on that. Yeah, I was just, I was just a, a concrete example to what Tim just said. I mean, th think about uh, think about uh, earlier on this century when uh, Som Somali piracy, piracy off the coast uh, in the in the uh, Western Indian Ocean was a real problem. That was a, that was actually what happened. In insurance weight, Lloyd's of London has a real say in where shipping goes. I don't think it ever got to the point where it was so bad that uh, shipping actually started uh, avoiding the Red Sea and in, into the Eastern Mediterranean. But uh, but there was a lot of talk about taking that long circuitous route around. The, around the southern tip of Atlanta, of uh, Africa and into the into the South Atlantic, so it, it's it's a really real thing. I mean, it's I mean, if you think about, I mean, that's a that's a relatively small scale thing. Man, I tell you what, if things blow up in the Western Pacific, that's a, that's a much more uh, that, that's a much more plausible challenge to your ability to ship stuff by sea. There's also the aspect that you can also do a, that you can also do a blockade of China without without ships and planes. You can do it from the islands from the first island chain and the second island chain. So. Yes, it uh, so points that everybody mentioned uh, geography and the extent of coastline. I guess those Mahanian concepts, elements of sea power, are still relevant today in uh, in twenty twenty two. So, um, so I want to pull this thread, maybe not necessarily push back, but the the concept of okay, the ship's a fool to fight a fort. Um, it seems to me today, in in from the time I served at at the Pentagon to discussions that I've had here. You know, we talk a lot about the um, uh, the concept of A2AD, the anti-access area denial. I know that term is out of vogue now, but let's let's just say for what it is, right? This um, this problem that we can't get near the Chi the Chinese coast, or um, a ship would be uh, uh, a fool to go into the threat ring of these hypersonic weapons. It seems like that has taken on a boogeyman type specter for many surface warfare officers in the United States Navy. And even the concept of thinking about a strategy is, has become a, you know, anathema, like, oh, we can't even get near that. It, it, it's way too complex. <clears throat> and I halfway think that's why the Marine Corps has, has come up with this um, advanced expeditionary base operations concept. It's trying to, you know, flip the script on uh, on the Chinese and, and shove the problem right back in their face 
and as an answer to the U.S. Navy that that <laughs> seems to be unwilling to wrap their head around the problem. Jim, have you seen you know the same kind of uh, of reticence? Yeah, I think so. And you mentioned the you mentioned the term A two AD, which actually has made a comeback uh, since uh, C and O Richardson retired. That, that was, uh, C and O Richardson, uh, Admiral Gilday's predecessor, was the one who banned the naval officers from from actually using the term, and that's what he was thinking about. He, I mean, he looked at maps in which you, we depict rate, and I do it all the time myself. I'll do it in my lecture on China. But when you depict that, when you depict the range rings around the China around China, coastal China, in in, in solid lines, it looks like a no go zone. And he wanted to he wanted to try to take the take the emphasis out of that, basically saying, yeah, we can go within the weapons engagement zone of China uh, and actually fight successfully. And I, I mean that's that's the idea that the that's especially uh, uh, Commandant Berger since taking uh, taking office in 2019, he's been pushing the idea of stand-in forces. We will remain within the weapons engagement zone. We will have small forces, missile arms to do reconnaissance and and, and, and strike. Well, while keeping a low a low profile, basically a small a small signature, and we'll move around a lot so that the Chinese can't uh, easily target us. That's the idea. That's the idea. When I talked about protracting the war and denying China a short war, that's the kind of that's the basic idea that uh, that I think the Marines have been pushing, and, and pretty successfully. There's been a, a fair amount of pushback from retired uh, commandants and, and other general officers, but I, but I think uh, Berger has actually uh, has actually gotten his way. And I think I think it's uh, I think it's the right move. So, they, yeah, whether whether you can get the Navy to buy in, I'm not entirely sure because just for one example, though, one one thing the Marines want in order to do all this stuff is a light amphibious warship suitable for for uh, for shuttling out of small small units from island to island. And the Navy has been the Navy has not been enthusiastic about it. I think the Marines want about 35 of them, if I remember right, and the Navy's uh, has settled on about 18, and we haven't gotten them off the drawing board yet. So it's not really a so it's not really a going concern yet. But yeah, it's a, but I think that's I think there's I think there's something to the surface Navy being very reluctant to do this. The good thing about it, the good thing about uh, about an active defense strategy predicated on small land forces on the first island chain is at that point, if you can do that successfully, at that point, at that point, your your surface fleet becomes the backfield. You can basically roam the backfield and try to plug up any points along that defense perimeter, and that gives you a lot more mobility and uh, and ability to evade uh, countermeasures. Last point I would make, and I and and you and and our students probably know more about this than I had or than I do. The late Colonel Art Corbett down at the Krulak Center at Marine Corps University, he, he thought we'd stay, stay, stand on the cusp of actually making directed energy defenses actually act, actually work. If that's the case, if you can actually if you can actually do soft kill via electromagnetic warfare, via lasers, via microwaves, or whatever. At that, at that point, you have a deep magazine to try to, to, try to fend off uh, saturi- saturation Chinese uh, b- b- missile barrages in that in that danger zone along the along the along the Asian frontier. So, a lot going on there. I don't have a clear sense of that because I don't do classified stuff. But it, but it does feel like we're on the cusp of being able to defend surface forces again, and I hope that is the case. Yeah, I <clears throat> uh, when I was at the Pentagon, the the railgun was one of the projects that. Um... Yeah. Some meetings on. I, I can't go down that road. But and because, you know, I, I don't want to I don't want to beat up on my own service. The Marine Corps want to beat up on the U.S. Navy. So, <laughs> so Dave, you look like you had. Oh, I was just I was struck by the irony. Jim was saying how the Marine Corps wants a small ship capable of um, sort of uh, delivering and supplying uh, advanced forces. I thought so you need a, a ship that's capable of supporting combat in a literal zone. So maybe like a literal combat ship would be the wave of the future. I'm just, I was like, what an amazing idea! I was, I was really. I wrote, about a, I wrote an article. I wrote an article on that not long ago. I was like, okay, the Navy wants to retire nine little combat ships suitable for operating it in shallow <laughs> waters. Can we really not make use of sort of an interim solution for, uh, uh, for, for? Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. They're not designed to be to beach and then drop uh, trucks and whatnot on shores, but you got to be able to find some use for those things rather than decommissioning brand new hulls. Just because you just because the uh, just because the, the the procurement process is a bit of a disaster, they can soak up all those anti ship missiles. No, I didn't say that. I'm just, we'll have to edit that part. Okay, let's no, go. The joke about the old uh, Fig Seven uh, uh, frigates during the Cold War—they were missile sponges. You to you to you along with a carrier battle group and put them outside uh, in the outer ring so that they would soak up the incoming missiles. Yeah. Kind of an unkind thing to say to those guys, but it was it was said. Um, so Tim, any thoughts on this one? Just to raise a big strategic question that came up about six years ago when they were talking about air-sea battle. Um, If you are worried about A2AD defenses and if you're worried about, you know, Fortress China, uh, 
the first and most important question you have to answer is whether we're going to be allowed to strike the Chinese homeland. And that's yes. a political call. And there's lots of reasons to think that some of the stuff that we did routinely against C2 assets in Iraq and in Syria um, is stuff that we won't do in China because of the potential for damaging Chinese nuclear communication or nuclear command and control. Um, those are really serious questions and they're gonna get decided at the highest level, uh, but they will profoundly then affect what you can actually do uh, if you're fighting in the theater. And if we can only plunk ships, then you're gonna come up with very different plans than if we can strike deep into China and hit command and control nodes and you know, mobile missile batteries, if we can track them. Um, so th there are some very serious strategic questions to be answered uh, in that it, for those contingencies. So I don't wanna just blame the slows and say it's their fault that, that we don't have a clear and coherent plan. I mean, that first order strategic question, because if we hit the Chinese mainland, by the way, they can hit ours. And you know, the last time we fought China uh, was in Korea and China was a sanctuary and Japan was a sanctuary. And those two sanctuaries profoundly affected the conflict. Um, do we want to start a conflict by taking a gesture which may mean that we don't have some of the sanctuaries we want. Um, that's a really serious political and strategic question. And I'm not sure what the answer to it is. Great point. Jim, you have a response on that one. Yeah, no, not really a response, just sort of sort of an ample. This was exactly how the battle over the battle over air sea battle unfolded. And there, there was a contending school out there uh, put forth by uh, Colonel T.X. Ham's retired Marine. And it was the idea of offshore control. You should try to control offshore waters without striking the Chinese homeland in order to put that leverage on the Chinese merchant fleet and the Chinese Navy without actually going after that sanctuary. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what we call the expeditionary advance base. I don't think it has a pithy name, but it's. I think that would be a variety of that as well. Using friendly soil in concert with high technology in order in order to inhibit your adversary's military movement and commercial movement at sea. But I mean, it's. I mean, think of it. Uh, Tim, Tim rightly points out that the potential consequences of going after the Chinese, the Chinese mainland, and that, that, that's very real. That's very real and consequential. But also, but also, even that, but but also think about it. Flip it around. Are we really going to let China cut loose at our ships and our airplanes and our Marines and so forth? Are we really going to exempt them from counterstrikes if they're killing our sons and daughters that are that are doing what we think is a worthwhile thing in China in China's backyard? So there's a there's a that's a real political question on our side. From a Trinitarian standpoint, do the American people put up with that, or they do they demand return fire? And I think that's that's really that really has to go into the net assessment of all this stuff uh, is just the, the the Trinity the impact of the Trinity on this whole thing. Uh, yeah, that uh, that's fascinating. Because, and I'm glad you mentioned the 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 policy question too, Tim, because um, you know for me the 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 concept of um, when the when the SWOs talk about oh we can't get inside those range rings, being an artilleryman. I'm very comfortable with being inside other people's range rings because I know I can shoot them just as easily as they can shoot me, right? But it's about risk calculus. So as soon as you're inside somebody's WES or range ring, your risk has now gone up exponentially. And how much risk tolerance do you have? But I think it's the charge is uh, what I would, would still kind of throw darts at, at the soil community, Tim, is because, and this is all the services really, we don't think joint. You know, we only think about our service and our countermeasures and whatnot. Well, the Air Force has a whole battle plan to take apart IADs and, and integrated defenses. And as soon as you have a joint fight, now you can destroy those things that can destroy you and get in there and, and cause them just as many problems. But it seems that risk calculus is very, very low. But you're right. It, it, it's entirely predicated upon a policy decision. Uh, and that's where the, the problem lies. Uh, it's, Tim, go ahead. Did that generate a? I think Dave had a point. So, oh, go ahead, Dave. Oh, just very quickly. Um, last uh, last seminar, my seminar was beating up, or actually, I was making them listen to my rant about Warden's theory of of rings. Um, the for precisely the reason that, that Tim articulates, it's one thing to take down um, air defenses in Iraq, where you're pretty confident that Iraq can't hit back at the U.S. mainland with a weapon of mass destruction. So you can go after leadership, you can go after communications, you can do anything you want. 
Whereas Moscow or Beijing raises an entirely different set of problems. And even Pyongyang raises an entirely different set of problems where um, you have to be a little more careful and you can't just run the script of we're going to hit what we want and suppress enemy air defenses and then we can do whatever we can roam at will. Um, and so these are very big and important questions to think about. Um, so so the, the point that Tim raises, I think, is absolutely vital, not just for China, but for lots of other potentially difficult problem sets the U.S. military might have to face. Yeah. Civil military relations have to be in near perfect alignment on that one for it to. <laughs> I mean, remember what Corbett says, if, you, if you're a great sea power and you want to wage limited war far, far from home, you have to be able to do two things. One, isolate the geographic object from the sea. And two, prevent an unlimited counter, counter strike against your homeland. If that's not possible, then at that point, at that point, uh, I'm not sure what Corbett says, but he starts throwing up his hands. Hmm. Yeah. So in the um, in the time we have left, gentlemen, I thought, uh, you know, we could uh, just talk about um, last key strategic takeaways in terms of contemporary challenges and what we can what we can learn uh, should have learned from this course and then moving forward, how we how we apply them in the in the current realm. Uh, so why don't we start this one with you, Jim? You know, I, I think they, I guess the biggest point that I would leave is just sort of the the point what, what, that we started off with on day one. Boy, I tell you, I tell, I tell you what, we have we have given you a set of powerful tools that you can apply not only in your profession but also really in your everyday life. I mean, I, I mean, we all have strategies for how we uh, raise a family and do all these sorts of things. I, I I torment my students from time to time. I just remind them that I was a I was a strategy policy student back in 1992 and 93. I still drag around my syllabus. Can complete with all the with all the course themes as they existed back. I mean, these are these are tools that you can get everyday use out of, as well as the theorists. And what, by the way, you have to read the theorists over and over again. You haven't done enough this to this term. I still try to read all the theorists cover to cover every few years, and I always get new values. It's something in Clausewitz always speaks to me anew that hasn't in the past. So, I guess I guess sort of from the motherhood and apple apple pie standpoint, that would be that would be those, those would be the major takeaways from the from the course. Clausewitz tells us that that once you leave the schoolhouse, you have to take ownership of your own self-education, and these are these, these are tools that you can use to do that. So take the tools away, keep reading, read whatever read whatever interests you that actually provides a professional benefit. It might be dusty dusty political science or international relations or history volumes. It might you might actually get uh, you might actually get value out of fiction, a fiction and literature, or even poetry. I, I certainly do. I, I, I get a lot of. I, I get a lot of value out of stuff like Battlestar Galactica and World War Z. I mean, there's there's a lot of there's actually a lot of goodness in those if you come at it from a strategic mindset that we provided you here in the course. Outstanding, Tim. Why don't we move to you next? Okay, um, this is sort of a preface. I'm giving a talk on the war in Ukraine on Tuesday, so um, I've been thinking about uh, the national security strategy and coalitions a lot, and it's interesting that the new national security strategy that rolled out last week. Um, Takes a, takes a really interesting view on the international system. Um, and it's an ideological view and it's a very American one where it says the world will sort of divide into a kind of bipolar competition between authoritarian states and democratic states. And that resonates nicely with the Cold War. Um, and you know, therefore is sort of a, it's, it's a familiar concept. I'm not sure that that's what the Ukraine war is showing us though, because Authoritarian states like China have not sided with Russia. And democratic states like India have not sided in opposing Russia, you know, with, with the West. Um, I think, you know, Dave hinted at the idea that sort of tactically and operationally, we were looking at a more defense dominant world uh, at this point in time because of technologies and, and military budgets and other things. Um, I think you could actually push that up to the strategic and the political level. If we've seen anything in the war on terror, conquest is really expensive. It's painful and it's hard to assure. And you know, this is at the heart of the flaw of Putin's analysis. Um, I don't think he could install a puppet regime in Ukraine after three days that the Ukrainians would pay attention to. Um, he was going to have he was going to have to occupy Ukraine, and he had neither the force nor the will to do so. And that's a fundamental strategic miscalculation. So a key determinant, I think, now in the international system is the will to resist. 
And some societies may not resist outside invasion, or they may not resist it effectively. But if you have to occupy the country, that resistance may generate out of local forces and nationalism. I think conquest is really hard. And that's an interesting thing to consider in the case of Taiwan. I mean, again, if Taiwan chooses to resist, they have capabilities that are very formidable already. And if others come and give them more assistance, even if we don't act as allies, um, Taiwan may be able to successfully resist China for a period of time. And that's worth looking at again in lights in the light of Ukraine. But before I sound all rosy-eyed, I would also point out that if you're Chinese, it may be that the solution you take out of Ukraine is, well, the Russians were unsuccessful at decapitating leadership, which is critical to our efforts in Taiwan. So we're going to have to find a way to be better at it. Um, the second thing would be, hey, nuclear threats seem to work. If we make nuclear threats, the United States may be deterred. They may provide support, but not forces. Um, and the third thing is speed, speeds of the essence. So somehow we have to do whatever it's going to do, whatever we're going to do, we're going to have to do it really fast, which means we're probably going to have to use surprise. And if they focus on those three things, they may be able to talk themselves into believing that they can pull this off. Um, personally, I think it's a much tougher uh, nut than they think it is. But as we know in strategy, a lot of it is about uh, how actors perceive and assess. And it is easy to perceive and assess incorrectly. Yeah. Um, tanks rolling across the border into Ukraine is one thing, whereas trying to do an amphibious assault over, um, you know, several nautical miles worth of, uh, of sea is, uh, is very, I know these things because I'm a Marine. So, uh, <laughs> Dave, we'll go to you for a final well, Leave it to the Marine. Our jobs are so hard. Yes, that's so right. <laughs> oh man, we have the hardest job there could possibly be. Oh, woe is us. Pity us. Um, <laughs> the concept I would pick, is, I mean, it was all over what Tim was saying. Tim didn't use the word, but I'm going to go to Thucydides uh, and the ancient Greeks and say hubris. Mm. Um, and there's, there's a, a nice way of reading Peloponnesian War as the tragedy of Athens. I'm not the, this is not my idea. There's plenty of people have said this. Um, it's certainly in Ukraine, we've seen that Vladimir Putin thought he was going to be able to do a lot of things that he just couldn't do. Um, and the United States has been guilty of that as well. I mean, I think a big part of the war on terror has been hubris in terms of thinking what it was that we could do um, at reasonable cost that we just could not do. Uh, and so one would like to think that the Chinese would learn the lesson of hubris before they actually started shooting war. That would be better for everyone. Um, and as a, a couple of, as, as both Tim and Jim have alluded to, um, letting the Chinese think a little bit about what starting a war might be like and what the consequences might be, because it's always hard, easier to start one than it is to finish one. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Okay. Tim, a uh, response on that one? Well, just about 10 years ago, when we were looking at China, this is roughly the time Xi took power. They were doing lots of studies that seemed to be quite serious and quite honest in terms of self-assessment uh, of the First World War and the run-up to the conflict and things that Germany did bad that China wants to avoid um, that led to a war. So at that point, it may be that they didn't have a hubris problem. Um, however, there's lots of reasons to think, as Xi has solidified control and power, um, that they're listening to their own narrative a lot, and maybe not listening to other people's narratives and you know fact checking and doing doing honest assessments. Um, however, I would suggest it's it's possible that they could do it. They appeared to be doing it in the past. It may be if we encourage them carefully that they can do it again. And then this great power competition remains a competition and not a conflict. Mm. Okay, Jim, we'll go to you for yeah for a for a long time for a long time before uh, before she came in back in uh, about this time I think it was November of 2012. The uh, there, there was a there was a famous there was a famous uh, foreign policy doctrine and it sounded a lot like George Washington's uh, uh, instructions to the nation in his uh, in his uh, farewell address of 1796, in which he said that the United States should basically lay low while it consolidated its economy, spread across the continent, did all this sort of thing, and then in, in the, at some future date it could have a coming out, out party and wage war or peace, depending on what on what uh, interests guided by justice should say. 
And, and it, sounded, it sounded like Deng Xiaoping's formula sounded a lot like that. But even so, it's it suggested that hubris still lurked. They, it was just a postponement of what we are seeing right now. It was a, he said to bide your time, don't claim leadership. Basically, conceal your capability. I mean, that that's a, that suggests that he had a much different vision in mind than Washington, who he seemed to have sort of an open open ended vision and didn't really see some particular path for the United States to follow. So, I think that's sort of to, to me, it's sort of implicit in what even Deng Xiaoping, who we regard as a, as a, as a uh, with, with with obvious exceptions like Tiananmen Square, but a, you know, a, a pretty good statesman for China to stage its opening and reform project and and basically make itself into what it's made into. So. So yeah, so, so I think that this idea of hubris is, I think it's, I think it's incorporated into. In fact, Sally Payne will tell you it's, it's, it's embedded in Chinese culture all the way back to, to when China became China many, many centuries ago. And also, just get, keep in mind, this is a, these are also communists. They're not just Chinese. And if you think about what Marxism, Leninism is, history's on my side. It only goes in one direction. The United States is on the way down. China's on the way up. Ultimately, ultimately, we're gonna. I mean, we're we're gonna, we're gonna win, and we're gonna be at the center of eight, certainly the, the Asian system and potentially the world system as well. So there's sort of a, there's sort of a confluence of uh, of factors that do sit, that do tend to lock in hubris in Chinese foreign policy and strategy. I hope Tim's right. I, I hope Tim's right. I, in fact, I was uh, very impressed by the, that. Was something that I wrote about. There was actually a series of a series of films and books about different rises of great powers in the past to help China learn what not to do and what to do to stage it to stage its rise to great power. In fact, there was an interesting the, the the Germany point was interesting because the the authors and the movie makers were very they were very fond of Bismarck's Germany sending a sending a signal that China is a, is a satisfied power much as Germany did under Bismarck. But then of course Bismarck was put out the pasture and the Kaiser marched the marched Europe over the precipice into World War 1. They wanted to send the signal that we're not like the China, the Kaiser's Germany, but I tell you what, I think they're behaving a lot like it lately. All right. A lot of great discussion, a lot of interesting points to chew on. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. Uh, been an excellent first uh, 12 episodes of the strategy of the Profile Strategy Podcast. We'll see everybody in the next iteration for the senior course. Thank you very much.